Titus chapter 2, we pick back up where we left off this morning. I do not have the time to recap. If you missed this morning's message, I encourage you to go and listen to it. We looked at Titus chapter 2 this morning and started a thought on verse number 14, where the Bible says, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We started that message this morning. And with God's help, we will pick up with part two tonight. Zealous of good works. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we turn our hearts and our attention to the scriptures. I pray that you would uh, help us, Lord, tonight to be able to complete the thought that we started this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would produce within our church, Lord, a, a, a surge of godly and fervent zeal for the things of God. There may be someone here this evening, Lord, that just needs that flame rekindled. And I pray that you would take the message tonight and do just that. Thank you for the good singing we've heard. And now as it's time for the preaching, I pray that you'd be glorified in all that's said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we really spent the bulk of the message looking at the good works and the many places in the scripture that uh, the Bible talks about good works. As I mentioned this morning, the Apostle Paul in the, in the pastoral epistle of Titus talked about good works a handful of times. He talked about it in chapter number 1 and verse number 16. Those that profess they know God but in works they deny Him. The Bible says that they are being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. All right, So they are not interested in good works. The unbeliever, those that are lost are not at all interested in in a life of good works. But multiple times in the remainder of the book, the Apostle Paul emphasized the importance of good works, not just in this book, but in other books. We won't recap all those this evening, but since we're right here in chapter two, he says in verse number seven, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. And again, down in our verse number 14 in our text, zealous of good works. And then in chapter three, verse number one, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And then verse number eight, he said that we should they might be careful to maintain good works. And then if that wasn't enough, he said it again in verse 14, to maintain good works. And so just in this book alone, we see a number of times the Apostle Paul referenced good works. And we looked at that this morning, but tonight I want to back up and look at the word zeal and zealous and places in the scripture where we find emphasis placed on the zeal because our text says zealous of good works, not just doing good works, but zealous of good works. And I think that it's important that the world see the child of God zealous of good works. And we may be here tonight and you say, preacher, I feel like I'm zealous of good works. You might be, you might not be. I don't know. I have to let God and his word determine whether or not you fit that description. But I do believe if we read our text that that's what God wants us to do. He redeemed us. He gave himself for us. He redeemed us from all iniquity and to purify in himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's God's plan for every child of God is to fit that description. So as I began to study the word zeal and zealous in different places where it came out, I had to make a list of areas of the Christian life that will be affected by a life of zeal. 
The first one I want to notice is take your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. Now you want to keep your Bibles open, keep them handy, keep it in your lap. We're going to be turning to several places this evening. As I said this morning, I've got a lot of Bible for the messages, all right? This is not my opinion. I just took a, the Bible verses. We're kind of stringing them together and trying to have a, a consistent thought here on the subject of zeal because I really believe that in 2022, uh, the, the average New Testament church is lacking in this area. Zeal. We start the chapter out, and uh, well, I really, I almost added another point, but I decided not to. If I, if I was down at the pastor and his mighty men's conference, I probably would have hammered pretty good on verse number seven. In chapter number seven, six and seven, Paul said, Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us, your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me. Now that's Paul just saying, I'm glad to hear that you feel that way about me. There's some zeal, there's some fervent desire, there's a earnest desire and a fervent mind toward me. He said, I rejoiced the more. Well, you could preach a whole message on that, but I decided not to, because I got three or four other points I wanna look at tonight. But we get down to verse number uh, eight, and Paul said, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for that you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing, for godly sorrow worketh repentance, to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world, worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that she sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. If you're taking notes, I believe number one, there will be a zeal for godliness. Now, he's talking here about godly sorrow. He mentions it three times, godly sorrow. But the point is they were repenting of sin and turning back to a life of cleanness, a life of, of, of right doctrine, a, right, a life of a right kind of a testimony. And that's what he's referring to multiple times in verse number uh, 11. And Paul gave this list. And he says, you're trying, you've approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Look at chapter seven, verse number one. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. One of the verses we looked at this morning out of the book of Hebrews was in perfecting good works. And what Paul did was wrote them a letter rebuking them for all of their doctrinal error and their carnality and all the things they were doing. And the Bible says that letter brought about and, pro and produced within them a, a sorrow, but it wasn't just a sorrow, or earthly or carnal sorrow. It wasn't just a, I'm sorry to get out from under the pressure of the rebuke, but it produced a godly sorrow, which in turn produced godliness. I believe in our text here this evening that it would be wise for us to understand that in order for us to have zeal in our life, we really need to get fired up 
about the sin that's in our life. You're not going to have zeal uh, for godliness until you get really aggravated at yourself when you're not godly. And I believe that's what he's talking about here. What, what indignation in verse number 11. What indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. This morning I told about the story of Jehu over in 2 Kings and that zeal. When he said to that man, get up here in this chariot, come ride with me. Let me show you my zeal for God that was sparked by a righteous indignation at the idolatry that was in the land. You're not going to have a zeal for good works until you get good and sick and tired and fired up and mad about the sin that's in your life. That complaint, you, by the way, you can't have indignation. You can't have that, that, that uh, carefulness. You can't have that uh, zeal. You can't have that vehement desire and apathy and complacency at the same time. It's impossible. The church at Corinth was in a mess. Apostle Paul wrote him a letter and dealt with a whole list of issues. And that letter brought about godly sorrow. And the Bible says that because of his letter, the Bible says they repented. Is that what your Bible says? Godly sorrow, verse 10, worketh repentance. What did God say to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3? Be zealous and repent. You're not going to repent till you get zealous. And you're not going to get zealous till you get mad. Fired up. Indignation. Amen. Some of you looking at me funny. If your sin is not bothering you, there's not going to be a, a, a zeal for good works. If your sin and your weights and the things which so easily beset you is not bothering you, doesn't cause you to be stirred up, you're not going to want to do anything about it. Sometimes you just need to get mad. I don't know any other way to say it. I mean, you use the Bible word indignation in verse number 11. And by the way, they didn't get mad at the preacher. Well, that's a lot of people's first response. Paul, Paul wrote them a sharp letter of rebuke. I mean, he used some terminology. He used some phrases in his letter. It was stout. He said in a couple places, don't make me come down there. You've said it to your kids when they're upstairs playing and tearing the house apart. Don't make me come up there. Paul said, don't make me come. You'd be wise to listen to my letter. If I'm in, if you, some of y'all, some of y'all, he says, some of y'all don't, you, you think I'm just blowing smoke. He said, you wait till I get there. You'll find out for real. I'm not playing. And they got that letter, and instead of getting mad at the preacher, they got mad at themselves. And it produced indignation. And that indignation produced zeal. Amen. Why do we have visiting preachers come in and preach revivals? And by the way, revival, that word revive means to bring back. When somebody, when somebody dies, whether they're in a car accident on the side of the road or the hospital, when they straight line, they bring in those, they bring in those shock pads and they get a drastic, drastic, uh, uh, yeah, what I'm trying to say. Drastic measures calls for drastic means or something like that. I'm telling you right now, we need some church members that need to be jolted and shocked. Quit making excuses for sin and quit, quit defending sin and quit and get mad at people for noticing it and pointing it out and turn that indignation into some zeal for good works and let it motivate you and stir you. 
He referred to their sorrow at least three times as being after a godly manner. And godly sorrow will bring about repentance. And there's a difference in godly sorrow and just being sorry because you got caught. Get fired up. Recognize what the devil's doing to you. Recognize what the devil's doing in your family. Recognize what the devil's doing in your home. Recognize what the devil's doing in your marriage. Recognize what the devil's doing in your mind and in your flesh and get fired up about it and turn that into some righteous indignation and let it start some zeal for good works and godliness in your life. Secondly, look over, you're in 2 Corinthians already. Just turn over to chapter number nine. Not only will there be a zeal for godliness, we could preach about that for about an hour. But there'll be a zeal about giving. I did a word study on zeal and you wouldn't believe all the places it popped up. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1, for as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. And he goes on and talks about giving, talks about sowing, talks about reaping, talks about to God's grace being able to make all grace abound towards you in verse number eight. He talked about sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly in verse number six and talked about giving in verse number seven. He said your zeal in verse number two in the area of giving has been an example that's provoked others to give. I got to thinking about zeal, zealous of good works. When's the last time you got fired up and zealous about giving? I'm going to preach. It's going to take me twice as long if I have to preach and amen myself while I'm preaching. And I thought about this. They were zealous about giving in an offering that they didn't even have to give to if they didn't want to. This was an offering for the saints. This wasn't even tithing. They were zealous about another offering on top of their already existing offerings and tithes. They were fired up about it. Their zeal about this offering was so amazing that it spread around in other churches and other locations. And this is without social media and without internet and without telephones. They found out about how zealous they were about their giving. And they said, man, maybe we ought to do that. I wondered when's the last time your zeal for giving was contagious? When was the last time your zeal for giving provoked somebody else to want to give? God likes zealous giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Accord every man according as he hath purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful Giver. <laughs> God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in the Greek is where we get our word hilarious. It's the Greek word hilaro. Hilaros. It means cheerful, joyous, prompt. Cheerful. Zealous about giving. The church at Corinth was zealous about giving. We ought to be zealous about giving. Zealous on the good works. You know what I found out? The only people that ever get mad about taking up a special offering is the people that don't give anyway. That's right. That's right. Amen. Crazy, isn't it? Ones that give, they like it. We don't twist anybody's arm around here anyway. 
Put the plates down here. If you want to put money in them, come put money in them. If you don't, don't. But God loves cheerful giving and God loves zealous giving. I want you to just put, a, put, put a, a ribbon or a piece of paper out there. I want you to turn with me over to Exodus chapter number 35. I want to show you something. I want to show you something about these, these uh, Israelites in Exodus chapter number 35. We've been preaching about them a little bit. I don't know how Moses pastored these Jehus. I'm telling you what. What an outfit. What an outfit. But they had one thing on most Baptists. When it came time for an offering, they got pretty excited. Is everybody still with me? I'm in Exodus 35. Are you there? Let's look down about verse number. Well, look at verse 4. Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. See that? God's wanting them to build a tabernacle in the wilderness. Look at verse number 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. They just got the memo. We're going to take up an offering. Man of God said, God will take up an offering. They all went home. Verse number 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up. And everyone whom his spirit made willing. You see that stirred him up? Hmm? We're talking about, we're talking about zeal. We're about zealous about every good work. Their heart stirred them up, everyone whose spirit made will, and they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all of his servants. Verse 22, and they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets. That's not iPads, that's like different kind of tablet. All jewels of gold, and every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Everyone that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought the Lord's offering. And every man with whom was found shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. And all the women that were wise hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun both of blue and of purple and scarlet and fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair and the rulers brought Onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate and spice and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. And the children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring all manner of work which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. What about that? They got zealous about the offering. And I mean, it, they were so fired up. They were so zealous they were so excited about the offering that the Bible tells us further on in the book that Moses had to stop them. He had to stop them. Ushers, just stop passing the plate. Just go on and put the money in the safe right now. We got more than we need. He had to stop. He said the work, he said the offering which you have brought for the work is too much. Now, if you ever hear me say that, you know I've lost my ever-loving mind. You just go on ahead and put me in a home somewhere. But that's what Moses said to them. They said they brought, they brought it, and, and, and he had to stop them. Well, all I'm saying this evening is this. Well, that's what it says in verse number, chapter 36. I was looking for it. It's underlined in my old Bible. It's chapter 36. 
Moses gave commandment in verse six, cause it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, neither let man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary so the people were restrained from bringing for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. Moses said, we're trying to build a tabernacle. Now we have to build a couple of sheds to put all the extra stuff in. They got excited about an offering. Preacher, when are you going to move to your next point? When you get excited about giving, we're going to go to the next point. Listen to me now. Listen to me. As a pastor, I'm aware of the fact that we got some people in this church that give. They give sacrificially. I mean, we got people, they give, they do without so they can give. We still in this church got people who don't give a dime. Now listen to me, I love you. And I don't treat you any different. I don't treat you any different. But when I get done talking to you and I walk off, I do make sure my wallet's still in my back pocket, make sure you didn't steal it. If you'll rob God, you'll rob the preacher. I'll tell you what else we do. We have the usher. As soon as they walk back there to the back with the offering plates, they go straight and put it in a safe. Because if you'll rob God during the offering, you're liable to rob God after the offering. I know I'm right. God robbers. I'm not saying we treat you different, but we have designated cameras to keep an eye on you at all times. Make sure you ain't looting stuff on the way out of here. I don't know why they're always taking up an offering down at that church. Well, if you ever understood the principles of 2 Corinthians 9, verse number 6, he that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. If you ever figured out that that works in the New Testament church economy, you'd get excited every time we have an offering. You'd get fired up and jump up and down and say, Woo! I get to sow some more seed. Amen. Amen. We got people sitting here, every time we had an offering, they used to give $10. And then God started blessing and they started giving 50 every time. And then they'd start giving $100 bills. And then they'd give 1,000. And now they give 10,000. Why? Because you can't outgive God. And if you ever figure that out, it'll make giving a zealous thing in your life. Zealous about giving. Amen, fired up. Man, we upped our faith promise. I had, I've, had people, I've had people stop me in the aisle the last couple of weeks and tell me stories. Tell me stories. Amen, one of our, one of our, one of our ladies, young ladies, came to me just a week or so ago. So I was working the job, wasn't making all that money, but God laid upon my heart to give, increase my tithes and increase my missions giving. And I didn't have it. And I said, God wanted me to do it. And then the preacher got up and preached about, quit trying to find a way and you just do what God said. So I decided to up my tithes and up my faith promise. As soon as I did, I got a job offer making $25 an hour. How you like that? You say, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't believe that. But see, that, that would make you an unbeliever. And unbelievers are towards every good work reprobate. But believers are zealous about good works. Am I still in the book? I thought I was. Make sure I got all that out. Don't treat non-tithers different, but I do check my wallet after we get done talking. I got all that, all right. 
You think I'm joking. I wrote that in there. I wanted to get that in there. Check my wallet, check my wallet. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I, feel, I almost feel honored. You robbed God, but you wouldn't rob me. What a blessing. You can't outgive God. Number three, you ready? Zealous about God's people. Look at Col- book of Colossians. Turn over to Colossians. Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter number four. We find a, we find a young man here that is a blessing. A, a blessing in a Colossians chapter number four. We're talking about zeal. This morning we talked about all the good works. Tonight we're talking about zeal and the areas of your life that it will impact. Look at Colossians 4. I want you to see this. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. He's from the church at Colossae. Who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God, for I bear him record, record that he hath a great zeal for you. What about that? Epaphras had a zeal for his church family. What a blessing. Paul writing the church of Colossae. Oh, by the way, hang on just a second. Epaphras is saying something. What you want to say, Epaphras? Epaphras wants me to tell you. He salutes you. He wants me to tell you that he's praying fervently for you. Hot. That word fervent means hot. Fervent. He's praying fervently for you. But he's not just praying for you in a general sense. He's praying for you, his church family, his home church. He's praying for you fervently, laboring fervently for you in prayer that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He's praying for you, laboring fervently in prayer for his home church to stand perfect in the will of God. And if that wasn't clear enough, Paul says, for I bear record that he hath a zeal for you. Let me break that down for you, South Georgia language. Paul said, this old boy loves his church. Loves his church family. He's zealous for his home church. I'm talking about zeal. Is it biblical to be Zealous for your home church? Apparently so. Paul, right in the church of Colossus, said he's one of you. He's a servant, salutes you. Always laboring fervently for you in prayer. By the way, when you're zealous about your church, you will pray for one another. A good indication that you're not zealous for your brethren is if you don't ever pray for them. What a testimony. I wonder, I wonder, I got one more point, but I wonder if it could be said of you, if the Apostle Paul could say, I bear record, I've witnessed it firsthand, and -and so-and-so has got a zeal for their home church. It's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. By the way, if you've got zeal for your home church, you won't miss half the services. I mean, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're going to be there. You're going to be involved. You're going to be plugged in. 
Apostle Paul said, Epaphras has zeal, a great zeal for you and for them in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Epaphras had a love for God's people, a zeal and a passion, one that motivated and stirred him to labor fervently for them in prayer. Point number four, are you ready? John 2, turn over to the Gospel of John. You knew I was going there. You knew I was going to John 2. Couldn't preach a message on zeal without going to John 2. The Bible says in verse 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand. I'm in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Jews' Passover was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Number four, there'll be a zeal for God's house. We'll be zealous about God's house. Not just God's people, but God's house. Now listen to me. Jesus in these verses is demonstrating a level of zeal for the house of God that is rare. In fact, it was so rare that when the disciples saw it, they remembered the writings of David in Psalm 69, where David said, The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. But they remembered when they saw that, it triggered in their minds that verse that they were familiar with out of the book of Psalms. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We would say it like this. He was eat up with it. Eat up with it. Consumed with a zeal. For the house of God. Now, I've saved this point for last because there just might be somebody here tonight listening or somebody watching online that thinks that it's possible to go a little overboard in your love and your zeal and your passion for the house of God. Let me tell you something. There ain't no one of us in here can even come close to this level of zeal right here. And I got to studying this and I got to looking at it. I almost preached another whole separate message just on this one point, but I believe I can get it all in here tonight. Jesus set an example of zeal about the house of God that was unbelievable. Let me give you four subpoints about Jesus' zeal for the Father's house. Number one, it was a painful zeal. And the pain is not yet in verse 15. There's a scourge. We're going to get there in a second. I see pain in verse 14. The Bible says that Jesus came up to Jerusalem, went to the temple. The Jews' Passover was at hand. And when he came into the temple, look at verse number 14, and found in the temple. That's where the pain started. Right. He walked into the temple, and what he found bothered him. Right. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. What he saw, what he witnessed, and what he found in the temple was painful for him. I cannot help but notice the zeal and the passion that Jesus had for the house of God. Imagine how he felt when he walked into the temple and saw what was going on. 
By the way, we got a lot of stuff going on in churches today that I believe is painful to the heart of God. We got stuff going on in churches today that if Jesus were to walk in, you'd see a side of Jesus you didn't know he had. I preached a message years ago in South Africa. I need to dust that thing off and preach it again on misconceptions about Jesus. There's a lot of people don't know how Jesus really was. They think they do. Why? Jesus would never do that. First of all, you don't know that because you don't read your Bible. But I've read my Bible and he actually did do that. He actually did say that. Jesus actually did put people in their place. He actually did look at the Pharisees and call them a bunch of snakes and vipers and whited walls and whited sepulchers and blind guides and everything else. You ought to be like Jesus. No, you couldn't handle it if they was like Jesus. But I'm going to tell you something. When Jesus walked into that temple, he was bothered. It bothered him. We got stuff going on in our, and, and I know this is a temple, but he calls it the Father's house. In verse number 16, so I'm making the application to the New Testament church, and I believe it'll work. It was painful. He came to the temple to observe the Passover, and when he came in, he was disappointed by what he found. And he wasn't glad, stay with me now, he wasn't glad that all these people in verse 14 was there. He didn't go around shaking hands. Just let this soak in just a second. He didn't go around and hug their necks and say, I'm glad you're here. He wasn't flattered that of all the places they could have set up camp, they came to the temple. Oh, I'm so glad. Of all the places they could be today, they're here. No, 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 no. That wasn't his response. He wasn't excited about the prospect of so many people that he could influence that day. No. He was disappointed. He was angered. He was disgusted by what he found. It was painful. But it wasn't just painful for him in verse 14. It was painful for them. Verse number 15, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Is that what your Bible says? I don't believe he would have qualified to be on the welcoming committee. I don't believe he had been a, a good fit for the hospitality ministry. Amen. Made a scourge. He didn't grab a broom handle. He made a scourge. Painful. By the way, that scourge is not a symbol of love and affection. It was a device used to inflict pain. You say, did he hit anybody with it? Your guess is good as mine. But he went through a lot of trouble to make it if he didn't use it. (laughs) Oh, pastor, I wish you was more like Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. I'd go to jail if I was more like Jesus. One of the greatest misconceptions today among so-called Christians is that the church is a place of tolerance and acceptance. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Listen to me very carefully. The church was not created for the unbelievers. The church was not created as a place for the world 
It was created as a place for God's people to convene and worship and fellowship one with another and break bread and hear the word of God preached. Somehow or another, the whole mentality for church growth and church planning has been to take the house of God and turn it into a den of thieves. I'll go a step further. I challenge you in the book of Acts to show me where people even got saved in the church. They got saved on the street and then they came to church after they got saved. Now we have invitation altar call every single service at Calvary Baptist Church. We have personal workers and we deal with people and people get saved in many of our services. But I want you to understand the church was put here for the people of God, not the world. One of the biggest mistakes that's been made in the philosophies across this country was when they turned churches into a place where sinners and lost people and wicked people felt welcome. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? It's important that you understand what I'm saying. The temple was a welcome place for people that came for the right reason. Just like a hospital is open for people that need help. But the hospital's not open for people that want to go in there and hurt other people. You can go to the hospital with any sickness, any injury, and they will welcome you. But you go in there with the intent of causing harm to people that are in there, and they will escort you out of the place. And I want to say this at Calvary Baptist Church. If you're coming here because you need help and you want help, and you're seeking God, and you're seeking a place where you can meet with God and get right with God and get help and get, get victory over things in your life, praise God, come on in. But if you're coming here so you can rub your sin in our face, you can keep it at the house. If you come up in here trying to change us, and change this church to accept the sin and the wickedness that you're living in, and then try to turn it around on us. I challenge you to show me in your Bible where the church is supposed to be open to the people that want to come in and add leaven to the lump. Paul said, cast them out of the church. Purge the church of leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Amen. I'm still in the book. He made a scourge of small cords and drove them all out. I imagine some of them went to the house with some blisters on their back. I imagine some of them walked out there rubbing, going, man, I ain't never gonna go back there again. It was a painful zeal. I got this in my notes. If your zeal for God's house don't bother some people, I question your level of zeal. I said, if your zeal for the house of God doesn't offend and bother some of your friends and family and set their teeth on edge with you, I doubt very seriously you even match up to the biblical definition of zeal. Yes, sir. Well, I, I don't want to hurt my family. They're having a family reunion next Sunday at 11 o'clock. I don't want to hurt my family. You ain't got to hurt your family. Just tell them you can't come. It's a bad time. You got something else going on. Yeah. Right. And if they really want you there, they will accommodate your schedule. And they'll change it and move it to another time. It's just that simple. Well, it's going to hurt their feelings. It might. They'll get over it. 
I'm talking about a zeal for the house of God. A painful zeal. Is everybody all right? Number two, it's a purging zeal. A purging zeal. He made a scourge of small cords and drove them all out of the temple. Is that what your Bible says? This is Jesus. This isn't Peter. This isn't Judas Iscariot. This is Jesus. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Verse 1, it's reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that want you to have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Says Paul in his first letter to the church at Corinth. He says in verse number Four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Is that what your Bible says? Verse number nine, I wrote unto you an epistle not to company with fornicators. That's still in the Bible. Not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Wherefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. That's still in the Bible. Now, I'm sorry, but I don't see a church philosophy of open doors and acceptance and tolerance of everybody's open sin. I don't find it in the Bible. I don't find it. People walk in with sin in their life and they got tears in their eyes and they're broken and they're ashamed and they're needing help. Praise God, we will help you find a seat. You walk in here with your nose up in the air living in sin. And we've got young people in here looking and watching. Amen. Draw a line. Yes. We'll draw a line. Amen. 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 You say, well, if I was the pastor, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, thankfully, you're not the pastor. I am. And this is hard. This is not easy. And this is not fun. And I don't get joy out of it. But every now and then we have to draw a line. Because that's what the Bible says. I don't want to give a seat to somebody. If Jesus was here, he'd chase out with a whip. I said, I don't want to welcome somebody that if Jesus was here, he would chase them out with a scourge of small cords. That's what I said. And I think it's interesting. It was a scourge of small cords. It's always them little things that run them off. Bunch of little things all put together is usually what does it. Is everybody Okay. 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. 
And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? It was a purging zeal. It was a powerful zeal. One man's zeal made a difference. One man's zeal made a difference. One man with zeal, one woman, one young person in our church with zeal can turn a church around. Right. Right. I don't know what I can do. And then just one person, what can I do? You get fired up, we'll see what you can do. Right. Get up off your behind and get some fire in your bones and get some fire in your belly and have some zeal for good works and God could use you to turn this church upside down. Lastly, but not least, it was a protective zeal. A protective zeal. Jesus said in verse number 16, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Those money changers were in there stealing from people. They were robbing them on the exchange rate. They was coming in from all these different countries, buying sacrifices. Those money changers was, was ripping them off on that exchange rate. And I've been there before. Whew. Travel the world. Missionaries say, don't go over there and get your money changed. They'll rip you off. I know somebody. They'll give you a better deal on your, on your currency, on your exchange rate. You're at their mercy. You can't spend your money in their country. You've got to spend their money, so you've got to change your money. Those money changers were there, and they were robbing people. You know what Jesus said? I've got to protect my father's house from this outfit. The Father's house, I'm talking about this Father's house. This is the Father's house, by the way. It's worth protecting. It's worth protecting. And that's, that's, that's the under-shepherd's job, by the way, is to keep the wolves out of the flock. A lot of sheep don't care if there's a wolf there till it gets their kid or them. But sheep are just sheep. They're just grazing. They don't care. A wolf can be walking all over. They don't care. But the shepherd cares. In fact, Jesus said, if the shepherd don't care, he's a hireling. He's not a true shepherd. And we got pulpits across this country today full of hirelings. Full of hirelings. They don't care how many wolves are in there. As long as they take up a spot on a pew, as long as they put money in the plate... They'll let the wolves in. Well, you're looking at one old boy that ain't going to let them in and knowing they're a wolf. I'm not going to let them in. This place is worth protecting. This church is worth protecting. I'm talking about a protective zeal. The Father's house is worth protecting because of the haven that it provides. We come here to have safety and sanctuary from that crowd. Why would we let them in here and tear everything up? Why? I like coming in here and being the majority. I like coming in here and not being a square peg in a round hole at my own church because I'm trying to raise my kids right and I'm trying to live right and I struggle just like you struggle but I don't need more peer pressure to do wrong when I'm at church. I drive by some churches when they're letting out and I look at people coming out of there and I wonder what in the world was they doing in there? Were they dancing? What were they doing? Just the way they're dressed and the way they're acting Coming out of quote unquote church, I'm like, what was they doing in there? Yeah, come on now. 
You say, preacher, you're crazy. I'm crazy as a sprayed roach. You don't even know how crazy I am. The haven it provides, it's worth protecting because of the holiness that it promotes. The Father's house should be an atmosphere that promotes holiness, not worldliness. The Father's house is worth protecting because of the help that it produces. People come here and get help. And I've said it before, this church, this church is a hospital. It's a hospital. It's where hurting people can come and get help. When I go to a hospital and they start to perform surgery on me, I want them to take, I want them to take all that stuff out of the packet. I want sterilized. Come on now. We went to Squires the other day and sat down and they drug a table from the corner and come over there and they sit down. And I said, uh, somebody needs to wipe this table off. I said, this table ain't been wiped off in a while. Somebody went and got the spray and the, and the cloth and they started wiping and it wasn't coming up. Like I said, it had been there a while. And I said to her, I said, she said, I'm sorry it's taking so long. I said, you take your time. I don't want to eat on top of somebody else's food. You, you clean this table till it's clean. Get it all off of there. I mean, it was dried and crusted and junk. Get clean. Wipe this table off. I don't want to eat on top of this. And when I come to church, I don't want to eat at a filthy table. I've preached in places before about need to put on a blindfold. The way the women on the front was dressed. Trying to preach and stare the gates of hell in the face while you're preaching. I'm not joking, I'm serious. I've been to places where they got up in the choir and you just had to bow your head till they got done. You think I'm kidding? I know churches that build a wall up there. It's called a modesty panel. They build a wall because the women in the choir's dresses are too short. Well, we don't have a wall. We just have dress standards. It's a whole lot easier to just have dress standards. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Well, I do. And I think God does. People come here to get help. Don't come here to fight the flesh the whole service. We got teenage boys down here having a hard enough time as it is. They're fighting their flesh and they're struggling with their flesh and they're trying to control their eyes. We don't need them to come to church to have to fight the flesh the whole time they're in church. And every one of you mamas and daddies right now ought to be saying amen. Some of y'all are sweating bullets. You ought to be saying amen right now. We're with you. Come on. Sometimes I feel like I'm fighting all by myself. You get all wadded up on me when I start preaching about dress standards. We're not at the beach, hallelujah. We're at the house of God. Dress like it. Act like it. Look like it. It's got to be important to somebody. Whole thing will go south about that quick. The things the preacher don't preach on, the church will fill up with. Well, preacher, you must have a problem with your eyes. You must have a problem with your flesh. I done told you I did. I'm not trying to be some super spiritual walking on water Christian up here. I said, I don't want to deal with it when I come to church. I want to be able to enjoy the goodness of God and listen to the singing and listen to the preaching and be in the service without having to fight my flesh the whole time. I don't want to beat my body under subjection the whole time I'm at church. 
What am I saying? I'm saying a zeal for the house of God will be a protective zeal and it won't just be the pastor. It'll be every member of the church will want to make sure the walls are tall and the walls are high and the walls are thick and there's no holes and gaps in the wall. Everybody, everybody ought to be protective about their church. Because the minute we let the flesh take over, the minute we let the world dictate, the presence of God will be gone and you can write Ichabod over the door, his glory will be departed. Is everybody okay? The haven it provides, the holiness it promotes. Father's house is worth protecting because of the help it produces and because of the heritage that it prolongs. Old time religion. Give me that old time religion. It was good for my father. It was good for my mother. It's good enough for me. Amen. I'm not looking. Listen, I'm not looking to carry the ark on carts. They carried that ark. They went down and got that ark of the covenant and put it on that cart. Hmm? That ain't how you're supposed to carry the ark. The Kohathites and the Gershonites, the Levites were supposed to carry that ark on their shoulders. That's how God designed that ark of the covenant to be carried. They put it on a cart. They're going to come up with a new way to transport the ark. That thing got the deck wagon, got the jostling. That thing started sliding. That old boy reached up and put his hand on it and God struck him dead. He'd have never been dead if he hadn't been carrying it the wrong way. And we've got a society today. We've got a bunch of preacher boys coming out of these so-called Bible colleges. They've got a better way of doing things. God's way is just too hard. It's too, too difficult. It's too time consuming. We've got a new way. You better watch out for that crowd. And there ain't a person in here that's, that's more for technology and ways we can advance the ministry as long as it doesn't violate this book right here. We didn't ever have projectors and screens when I was growing up. Churches we was growing up in didn't have that. In fact, most of the preachers I preached, sat under probably would preach against it. Bless God, we ain't going to have no projector in here throwing up on no screen. Bless God, we ain't doing all that. And that's fine. That's, and and if, they're, if I'm sitting out there and they're preaching, I'm going to go, hey, man, and go buy two of the biggest projectors I can find. <laughs> it don't bother me. I don't have a problem with technology. What I got a problem with is trying to substitute yeah. God and God's presence and God's power, yes. jeopardizing what we're going to pass down to our children and our grandchildren. I got a little grandson going to be leaving in June to go to the Philippines. <clears throat> and hopefully, in a couple of years, mom and daddy bring him home for furlough. I don't want him to come in Papa's church and say, what happened? What happened? Grandpa, what did you do? What did you do? It wasn't like that when I left. I don't want him coming. I don't want him coming in here looking at me. What did you do? 
Well, I went to one of them summits. I went to one of them leadership meetings. I went to one of them things where they, they reinvented church. And, and, and I realized that it was just doing so many things wrong. And we just really want to, we want to, we want to reach people and we want, we want to, we, we want to help people come in. And I realized that I was preaching too hard and we had too many rules and too many guidelines. And I just realized that if I was to drop all that, we could have a whole lot more people in here. I ain't interested in that. And every now and then I have to preach like this just to keep myself fired up about protecting the house of God. If you're a member of this church and you have any kind of a leadership position, you ought to share what I, you ought to share in your heart and in your mind what I'm saying right now. And I know, I know most of you do. Most of you do. I'm just, I'm just saying tonight that the zeal that Jesus had for the Father's house, ain't, ain't too many of us got a zeal like that. We're scared to show that much zeal. We're afraid somebody will call us a holy roller. A lunatic, a fanatic, or whatever. Zeal, zealous of good works. How long have I been preaching? I didn't even look at the clock. I don't even know what time I started. Well, I'm about finished. Y'all about preach me to death. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to try to wind this thing down. <clears throat> I'm getting older. I'm not old. You know what I'm saying? I'm not old. I'll be 50 in October. I'm not old. But I'm getting older. You know you're getting older when you get the flu and it takes you three weeks to get over it. I used to be over in about a day and a half and now three weeks later I'm still like, man, that flu killed me. You know you're getting older when you get all the tools out to do a job and two hours later you look at Brother Leader and say, let's put these tools up, I'm done. I ain't got what I used to have. And now it takes three cups of coffee in the morning to get started instead of just one. But I'm going to tell you what I've seen a lot of preachers do when they get older. They mellow out. They just mellow out because they get tired of fighting. They get tired of the looks. They get tired of the whispers. They get tired of all the posts on social media. They get tired of being labeled as a legalist and a Pharisee and they get tired of being legaled as, as, labeled as a hard preacher and they get tired of all the labels and they get tired of all the pushback and they get tired of all the, all the, the, the battle and they just, they just ease off. And they'll just start coasting. And they'll have a church that's just a powerhouse. People get saved and baptized and taking on missionaries and new, new families joining. And the pastor just gets tired because it is exhausting, church. It is exhausting pastoring some of you. It's like herding cats. Get this family back in church and then that one over there, they go. You get them over here and then that one, that one, there's that one. And that one's miffed about something and that one's mad about something. That one's pouting about something and that one don't even know if they're saved or not. And that one, and, and you're just constantly just trying to, trying to get the sheep all together. And they get tired. 
about my age. Their kids get grown. They just get tired. And they just start coasting. And they just think, well, if I could just, I got a good thing going. If I could just, I'll just ride this gravy train all the way to the pearly gates. And they'll drive a good church right straight into the ground. I've seen it happen over and over and over and over again. And I don't want that to happen here. I don't want that to happen here. I've got no plans of taking my foot off the gas. I've got no, t- no plans of pulling over. I've got no plans of backing up, backing off. It's hammer down. It's glory bound. It's up and to the right till Jesus comes back. I said it, Brother Caleb, when I got here eight years ago, I said, with God's help, I stood right in this pulpit and I told the church before they ever voted me in, I said, with God's help, we're gonna take this church up and to the right. And I have not changed on that. I haven't changed on that. Up and to the right. If right makes you nervous, I'm just getting started. Up and to the right. Why? Because I've got a zeal and a passion for the house of God. This is the Father's house. It's the Father's house. We need a place where people can come and get help. Amen. Well, heads bowed, eyes closed, altars open. Maybe something was said tonight about the having a zeal for godliness, a zeal for giving, a zeal for God's people, a zeal for the house of God. Maybe something was said tonight, start, start a little spark burning. Maybe you just want to get in this altar and pray for Pastor Shiflet. I need all the prayer I can get. I need all the help I can get. It's a great church. It's a great work that God's put us in.